Welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Stephen Dickens, attorney and vice president of medical practice services at SVMIC with us today. In this role, he advises physicians and their staff on organizational issues, including governance, operations, strategic planning, leadership, patient experience, and human resources. He is a published author and frequent speaker at state and national conferences on, this on these topics. Mr. Dickens has spent the, the last 25 years working with physicians in various roles, including 15 years in medical practice, hospital, and home care executive positions before joining SVMIC in 2008. He is a past chair of the Medical Group Management Association, having served as the first solo chair of MGMA ACMPE, which had more than 33,000 members during his term. He is a past president of the MGMA Financial Management Society, Tennessee MGMA, and Tennessee Association for Home Care. He is a board certified medical practice executive and is a fellow in the American College of Medical Practice Executives. In addition, he has previously earned a fellowship in the American College of Healthcare Executives and the certification as Home and Hospice Care Executive by the National Association for Home Care. He is a 2015 recipient of the Martha Johnson Distinguished Service Award from the Tennessee MGMA honoring his contributions to the organization and the medical practice profession. He was named Tennessee's Home Care Administrator of the Year and received the President's Award for Service to the Industry from the Tennessee Association for Home Care. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the right-hand side of your screen. So Stephen, without further ado, a very warm welcome. Well, thank you, Catherine. I appreciate that. And I'm very happy to be with you and your listeners today. Uh, discussing patient experience is a topic about which I am very passionate. We've all had the opportunity to be a patient at some point or someone in our lives has been a patient. And occasionally as providers and those on the other side of the relationship, we forget what it feels like to have to go through it ourselves or with someone we love. When I talk about patient experience, it of course is one of the buzzwords today, but I always like to ask everyone, do you really feel comfortable understanding what the concept of patient experience is? It, it's a little bit you know, confusing, it's a little bit different. We wonder, well, how is this really different from patient satisfaction? So when I ask people, they I get mixed responses. When I ask the audience, do you know what patient satisfaction is? Every hand goes up. We have now measured patient satisfaction for decades. And we all understood it was about getting those survey scores back. Uh, I find it ironic, however, that we spent all those years measuring patient satisfaction, but the reality is most of us just really didn't care. We, we didn't do anything with it. We, we were just looking to see if our patients were happy. All we really did was make multimillionaires out of the people who were conducting the satisfaction surveys. We weren't asking really in-depth questions about the care or services we were providing. We were just jumping through another hoop. And 
while it was important to measure patient satisfaction and, and we knew organizations were doing it, it was so easy to discount what patients said. Oh, they were in a bad mood that day. Oh, well, you can't satisfy some people. And, and for the most part, we could continue on. Well, the world is changing. Uh, patient satisfaction scores are no longer kept in an envelope or on someone's desk somewhere. Patients are sharing those experiences publicly now. And beyond that, we know that the experience a patient has is impacting a practice in a very different sense. So the objectives for today are to help you understand the difference between satisfaction and experience and why experience is important in an ongoing sense across healthcare, to address some of the barriers to a positive experience, and then talk about some of the strategies and very simple steps that one can use to achieve a better experience. Nothing today, I will say, is rocket science. Nothing I say today is anything that you probably don't already know. What it is, though, are all those things that we get too busy or that we forget about in dealing with our patients. So as we begin, I think it's really important that we all use the same terminology. And beginning with that, I want to talk to you about the concept of a patient-centric practice. And when I talk about a patient-centric practice, what I'm referring to is the culture of the organization. All organizations have a culture. There is no mistaking, there is no denying that. Ideally, when I talk to physician organizations, I'd like for that culture to begin at the top, that the physicians define it, set it, they live it. The practice executives live the culture that, that we see supervisors and managers exhibiting the behavior they want their staff to emulate. And that's when it works best. But when the leaders aren't setting a culture or when they aren't living it universally, make no mistake, it will form on its own and it will form at the lowest common denominators. And sometimes that's not the culture you want or it's not the people you want leading the culture. And culture can be a little difficult to define, so I like to do so by example. The easiest way I know to define culture is to ask the question, have you ever gone into a store and you immediately knew everyone who worked there worked on sales commissions? And it's happened to all of us because we've all gotten that feeling from the sales clerk that we were being judged. They, they would judge how we're dressed, how we talk, uh, did you bring your children with you? How how do they behave? Can they look out into the parking lot and see your car? They are making an assessment about whether you are the best fish they are going to catch and whether they're going to spend their time providing customer service to you. And what's even worse than the feeling that you're being judged is when they dismiss you and don't pay any attention to you. That is a sales-centric culture. And many organizations have it. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but what is so shocking is that they don't realize that it's obvious and that it really will turn you away from doing business with those people. Conversely, think about the businesses you've been in where you received wonderful service and when you left, the thought occurred to you, I wonder if that person got paid on commission. You probably didn't care because you got what you wanted and you felt that you were treated well. Well, with the concept of a patient-centric culture, what we're talking about there is making the decisions we make about how we run the organization from the perspective of the patient. Do we stop and consider how this process flows for them? How do they feel from their side of it? And many practices do this very well. There are also many practices out there that are what I would call physician-centric, meaning we make the decisions we make from the perspective of the doctor. It's about what makes their life easier, no matter how it complicates or impacts employees or patients. We use green paper instead of blue paper because Dr. Smith doesn't like blue paper. It can be silly things. It can be more complicated thing. We make sure that all exam rooms are full at 8 a.m., even though we know the doctors aren't gonna be there until 9 or 9.30. And there are some reasons that we would want to do things physician-centric. The third type of culture I find in a practice is what I refer to as employee-centric. I do not find a lot of those, but they do exist. And 
they can be simple things as well too. Do we all wear scrubs, the people at the front desk as well as the clinical staff? Do those scrubs match or do I get to choose what I want to do? Sometimes it becomes a little bit more complicated. The employees decide what we do at the holidays. They decide whether we close for lunch, meaning nobody's available to answer the switchboard. In the most employee-centric cultures, I find that employees will stop scheduling patients after 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon because they want to ensure that everyone is gone so that they get to go home on time. And again, there are reasons for all of these cultures, but the very best organizations manage to blend those things. They create an environment where physicians can be productive and see patients without interruption or drama because that's what they went to school to do. They know they treat employees as a valued resource and employees know that they make a difference in the lives of their patients and their significant others. And patients feel genuinely cared for and find it easier to navigate the process. The next step is patient satisfaction. Again, all patient satisfaction ever was was a measurement of happiness. It, it was nothing very sophisticated. Patient satisfaction really got a stronghold a number of years ago when we began measuring it in emergency departments and incentivizing physicians based upon their patient satisfaction scores. We began using pain scales and different things to, to get at how patients felt. And, and those things have had some repercussions on their own as time has worn on. Many doctors feel like patients are now in charge of what happens because if we don't make them happy, we have to deal with the repercussions. Moving on to the next term, term and measurement is what we refer to as patient engagement or patient activation. This too is a measurement, but instead of measurement of, of happiness, what we're seeking to determine there is what the patient knows about his or her condition and to what extent do they understand what they need to do to take care of themselves. So the questions are very different if we look to measure patient engagement. It requires that we impart some level of understanding to them. And then all of these things combine together into this concept of patient experience. And it is a never ending cycle because you must create the culture. You must at a minimum satisfy patients. You must then engage them in their care to the level that they have some understanding so that when asked about their experience, they have the perception that they have received appropriate medical care. And I use the word perception very purposely because it has nothing to do with reality. The average patient is not clinically competent enough to know whether he or she received appropriate medical care. They simply know how you made them feel and they're able to talk about what they know. So in terms of measurement, that's what we're seeking to achieve. Looking at the questions between satisfaction and experience, satisfaction questions are all yes, no. They're all touchy-feely. Could you find a parking space? Did you like the magazines? I, I could have answered that question for you. But did, did we return your call? Do you have any complaints? From an experience perspective, it's not just whether we did something. It's about how well we did it. How well do you understand how to take your medications? How well did the nurse explain your lab results? How well did the billing office help you with your EOB or the billing process? We still want an absence of complaints, but as we move into this concept of value-based reimbursement and experience becomes a part of that, how well we do is important because we're being compared to our colleagues and other practitioners and other offices. So the takeaway here is that patient satisfaction and patient experience are not the same thing. I really like to describe patient experience as patient satisfaction on steroids, and that's because it requires effective communication. A little side note about effective communication. How many of you listening to the program today would classify yourself as an effective communicator? I certainly would. I, I mean, I know what I'm talking about, and if other people don't, surely they're an idiot, right? Well, yeah, let's think about that one for a second. How many misunderstandings have you had with a, a coworker or a colleague or, or how many tips have you had with your own significant other because he or she did not understand what you meant? Or as my mama would put it here in the South, you didn't hold your mouth right when you said it. Effective communication is not that you know what you're talking about. 
Effective communication means the person you're talking to understands what it is that you've said to them. And there are a lot of reasons we should focus on patient experience. And the, the one at the bottom of the list here is generally the, the one that gets the most attention. It does impact our reimbursement. I believe there are marketing implications. And if you don't believe experience has an impact on your practice, then go Google your doctors. Go Google the organization. We know that significant numbers of patients look to online reviews and use those in making their decisions about who they want to see. 47% of patients say that they will see a physician out of network who has higher online reviews. That means they're willing to spend more money to get a better service. And if you think about your own purchases, we all have those things we're willing to spend a little bit more for because we perceive a higher quality or we like the service we receive from the vendor. There are some efficiencies to be had. How many patients who have been in your office will leave, go home, pick up the phone and call to ask a question they could have asked while they were there or did ask while they were there? And then how many of them will hang up the phone, call back and ask the same question again? We're spending the time with patients, helping them navigate this process. Wouldn't it be a lot more efficient if we did it face-to-face -face as opposed to paying, playing these phone tag games? From a risk perspective, when a patient feels cared for and connected, they will excuse most adverse events. Now, if you cut off the wrong leg or take out the wrong kidney, certainly not. But they will forgive those simple mistakes if they feel like you've gone above and beyond. Oh, you know, I know my doctor really cares. I remember the time the nurse called in or did this for me. We believe that when a patient feels cared for, they will forgive those things. And when that relationship does not exist, they're about twice as likely to see you. And the reality is it's one of the few ways that they have to get your attention and to get even with you other than going on some tirade against you online. But the most important reason to focus on patient experience is the one at the top of this list, outcomes. Every piece of information points to the fact that patients who understand what is wrong with them and who understand what they need to do simply get better. They're able to manage their condition more effectively. In terms of how we're going to measure patient experience, well, it should come as no surprise, the government has already devised a, a method. And for those of you who have physicians working in the hospital, you're familiar with the Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Provider Services. We use the HCAPS version in the hospital. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality has been developing patient experience tools for a number of years now. The one we anticipate that we will eventually move to in a practice setting is the Clinician and Group Survey, the CGCAPS. And it's been out there for some time. It's been updated and altered, and, and currently there are 31 questions on it. And my intent is not to get into the mechanics of that today, but to simply point you to it, look at the questions that it asks, uh, and think about how your patient might answer some of those questions. I have three questions in particular that I want to share with you today because I want you to decide how your patient will answer them. Number one, it asks about the ability to get an appointment. Well, what does that look like in your practice? Is it a patient-centric, uh, excuse me, is it an employee-centric practice where no one answers the phone during lunch, where we don't schedule appointments after 3.30? Uh, you know, what does that look like? There is a reason we have walk-in clinics. We've, we're moving into generational differences where we expect immediate gratification. We want to be able to get in and get out. I've had a couple of experiences with this personally in the past year. We, we had last summer what I lovingly referred to as the broken clavicle situation at my house. And I'm somewhat of the healthcare expert in my family, which means all questions come to me. And, and a member of my family fell and broke uh, their shoulder on a Sunday morning. We did the whole ER thing. And of course they referred us to an orthopedic surgeon, said you need to get in as soon as possible. So Monday, eight o'clock, I'm on the phone calling to make an appointment. I was put on hold three times, never asked if I wanted to be on hold. The last time I was there was for 20 minutes, not knowing if anyone was going to come back. And when someone finally did, her comment was, I can't figure this out. I'll call you back and hung up. Well, 
I've got somebody I care about here who is in agony. Are you going to call me back today? Or are you going to call me back tomorrow? What does that look like? You're leading me wondering, do I need to call somebody else? I had it happen to me. I had seen my doctor. He had referred me to a specialist for an issue. Saw the doctor. It was a wonderful experience. But at the end of the appointment, he said, you know, Stephen, I, I really think that you, you need to see a subspecialist. I'm done with you today, but I'm going to send Susie back in here. She'll get you checked out. You're good to go. Well, his nurse, Susie, came back into the room and said, you know, you're done. Here's the doctor that, you know, Dr. Smith wants you to see. And she handed me a card and said, I've called and made your appointment. I almost immediately knew that it was going to be an issue because my schedule looked so far in advance. Well, she handed it to me and gave me the day and the time of the appointment. I already knew I had something booked, but I, I really appreciated the trouble she had gone to, so I didn't say anything. But I'll fix this. I, I called the subspecialist, told him who I was, said, I can't keep this appointment. I need to move it. Without asking me what I wanted, she gave me a new date and time. Well, that one didn't work for me either. And I understand what she was doing. What she was doing was employee-centric. The easiest thing for her to do was to give me the first available appointment. And she assumed that that's probably what I wanted and would get her off the phone the quickest. But it wasn't what I wanted. I, I wanted to come on a day that I didn't have to rearrange my schedule. I was willing to give her any number of options if she'd ask the question. Again, I understood what she was doing. The average patient would not have. And from an efficiency perspective, she ended up spending more time on the telephone with me than she would have if she had simply asked the question, is there something that works for you or something that we need to avoid? Next question, what is your knowledge of my medical history? I love this one. And it angers physicians when I bring it up because we, we make appointments for patients. We ask them why they want to come in. We, we send in a nurse or a medical assistant who asks them all these questions and is sitting there over there beating on the keyboard. We assume typing it all in and then the doctor walks in and so often the first thing he or she will say is, what brings you in today or what can I do for you? And, and, and that's where they, they get angry with me for, for making fun of them. And, and I'm not really. I am being facetious. Because I know why they ask the question. There are a lot of really good reasons. Number one, is there something that they didn't tell the nurse that they're just going to tell the doctor? You know, I want to know that at the beginning of the appointment, not the end. Are there certain words that they use that will have meaning for me? Or maybe it's a cognitive test. Based on how the patient says it or what they say may give credibility or lessen the credibility. It's a great question. Not saying don't ask it. What I'm saying is use effective communication. Steve, it's good to see you today. I've read what you told my nurse, Susie, but I want you to tell me what's going on. I want to hear what you have to say. That's the same question, but you've told me why you asked it, and you've done three very powerful things. You told me you're prepared, whether you are or you aren't. You've told me that your nurse or medical assistant is a very important member of your healthcare team, important enough that you looked at what they wrote down, again, whether you did or didn't. And then finally, you've told me that what I have to say to you has value to you. Now, having picked on the doctors, I'm gonna pick on the folks at the front desk too. I love to sit in the lobby and listen to those questions. Or when I go to the doctor, Stephen, it's good to see you. Is your birthday still April 17th? I just want to look at him and say, no, no, not this year. I've decided to move it. We're going to do October or something else. Or or I hear them asking elderly patients, is your address still 101 Main Street? And we have to relive the story of how they bought the house 30 or 40 years ago. It comes off as sounding very silly. Don't you know me? I've been your patient for years. It's not effective communication, and it's not the question you want to ask. What you want to confirm is whether anything has changed or whether you've got the right chart open. Steve, can you confirm your birthday for me? Mrs. Jones, will you confirm your address? Steve, I want to make sure I've got the right chart open. Is your, your birthday is April 17th, correct? That sounds very different. And then the third question I'll share asks about the amount of time spent with the patient. That one is going to be a real challenge because of this next statistic. The average physician-patient interaction in an exam room in the United States is only about 12 minutes. And as we all know, a lot of things have to happen in that amount of time. 
when I show this statistic, I, I find half the audience is generally surprised that the visit is that short. Half the audience is surprised that it's that long. It's an average. All visits are different. It depends what's going on, how well you know the patient, et cetera. But do the math here. If you have a physician who is this productive, that's only five patients an hour. How many patients have to be seen in a day to pay the overhead, to pay the bills? And we now know that for every hour spent face-to-face -face with a patient, another hour and a half to two hours is spent on documentation. Physicians and practitioners have to get in and out of the exam room very quickly to make it work, given our system. So this is the most important thing I say during this presentation. Staff have to understand that what they do from the patient's perspective of the experience is just as important is anything that physicians and practitioners do. That is not to belittle their education or demean their decision-making capacity, but it is simply to emphasize the point that patients believe everything a staff member does is directed, ordered, blessed, condoned, or in some way orchestrated by a physician. They are the first people a patient will come into contact with. They are the last people they will come into contact with. This is the last memory I walk out of your office with. And the reality is, given our current system, staff as a whole spend more time with the patient than their doctor or practitioner ever will. So they have to understand it is their responsibility to set up this 12 minutes for success and to close it when the deal is done. So what do we do? Well, get yourself a picket sign and head up to Washington if you think that might do some good. But the reality is, we are already into this, and, and whatever happens with payment reform, we have moved into a time in our society when patients view their relationships with physicians very differently. Experience is very important to them, so we have to acknowledge that change is here. We have to make sure that our staff understand experience and why it's important. That may mean that we need to retrain them, identify the the challenges in our office, the, the breakdowns there, and that we are creating the right culture. To some extent, I think we're going to have to retrain our patients as well. And this means that we have to work on our teamwork and communication skills. And teamwork, teamwork and communication are absolutely key. And it's not just communication with patients and their caregivers. It's our communication across the healthcare spectrum. As a primary care physician, if you refer a patient to a specialist, do they understand why they need to go? Do they understand why it is that you've referred them? If you are using a hospitalist or you're transferring care, does the patient now understand who is in charge of that care? If you're using outside labs, diagnostic centers, uh, home care services, any of those things that you're making referrals to, their service is a representation of you as well, too. Do patients understand what they need to do to take care of themselves. Again, a personal experience with this uh, in my family. My, my dad passed away of liver cancer in March. And uh, remember when he went into the hospital the week he passed away, he had fallen at home. And we had called the ambulance and transported him. And we get there and we're talking to these people. And, and they asked who his doctor is. And my mother's not sure if it's his primary care physician or his oncologist. And then she's sitting there waiting for one of the two of them to show up, not realizing that he had been transferred to a hospitalist at that point. Understand that when our patients ask us what they think is the same question and they get two different answers, they assume that we've lied to them. So it's very important that you don't answer questions outside the scope of your responsibility. If you are a clinical person, don't answer billing questions. If you're a billing person, don't answer clinical questions. No matter how many times you've heard the question asked and answered, that will be the one time you're missing a piece of the puzzle and don't get it right. When a, a physician tells a patient, you know, it'll be next week before I get your lab results back and have an opportunity to look at those and follow up with you. But then the phlebotomist says, oh, those results will be back in the morning. Those aren't exactly the same things, but what the patient heard is, oh, my test results are back tomorrow. I should get a call tomorrow. They will believe the answer that they want. They will believe the lowest common denominator. And from a risk perspective, according to the Institute for Healthcare Communication, about two-thirds of all medical errors are the result of ineffective communication. That's not bad care. 
those are those patients who don't keep their follow-up appointments or who don't go see the specialist because they don't understand the importance. Those are the patients who don't understand what it means to take a pill with every meal. And there are many of those people out there. In terms of effective communication, you have to engage in the conversation. You have to connect to the patient. And you get one very brief opportunity to do that. At the front desk, it's when the patient comes in. I can see if you're busy, but I want to know, are you going to acknowledge me? Or are you there? Are you locked behind a closed glass window? And there are lots of signs everywhere directing me what to do. Just a, a side note for you there. When your signs reach the point that they've become wallpaper, nobody's reading them anymore and, and take them down. You know, signs don't stop patients from doing things you don't want them to do. They just annoy people. When we create rules because someone has done something we didn't like, it generally doesn't stop it. It creates more work. It frustrates us. So that acknowledgement at the very beginning at the front desk, the acknowledgement when you walk into the exam room, if you walk in with your head buried in your computer or tablet or chart, you've missed the opportunity to engage with me. Ask the patient the question you want answered, and then be quiet long enough to let me give you an answer. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm not sure that I'm using the right terminology in my incontinent or incompetent. You know, those words are very similar, but there's a big difference. If I'm an introvert, I process internally. I want to form the sentence before it comes out of my mouth. Listen to me. Most people find silence uncomfortable and will start talking too soon. As you're working on your computer, uh, you know, let me know that you're still there. Acknowledge what I'm saying. Practice reflective listening, which means you repeat back to me periodically what I've said. You paraphrase it. Oh, okay, Mrs. Jones, I understand that you're, you're dizzy in the morning when you get up. I want to get that in the computer. It's important. Explain why you're doing what you're doing and why you're not doing something else. If, if I go to the doctor and I've self-diagnosed my sinus, myself with a sinus infection and ask for an antibiotic and leave without one, unless I've been told why, I have to assume that either you didn't listen or you didn't care. Neither is an attractive option. Clinically, patients have two questions they want answered. Do I have what I think I have? Because most have self-diagnosed, no matter how inaccurately. And are you going to do what I think you should do? Because that's the next step following self-diagnosis. In terms of how patients hear us, this is my favorite slide in the world, and I believe it to be genuinely true, and it drives much of the work that I do in dealing with interpersonal relationships. In face-to-face -face communication, only about 7% of what we say is conveyed by the words we use. The majority, 55%, is body language, and, and we all know this to be true, especially those of you who have or have raised teenagers. You can read their body language and tell when they've tuned you out or when they've dismissed you. Those are, the rest of communication is tone of voice, 38%. We've all heard that person who said the right thing, but they, they didn't say it right, and it came out offensive or, or hurtful or angry somehow. We judge what people mean by how they say it. And in an ideal world, your body language is genuine. You, you hop up out of bed every morning. You're, you're excited. Everything goes great. And you're anxious to get to work. But the, the reality is we're all in a hurry. We're all running behind. We either missed breakfast or burned our toes. The kids needed something. We almost had a fender bender onto the work and getting to work. And then you get there and you see that one patient's name on the schedule that if you had seen it the day before, you would have called in sick. So this is how you fake it. Perhaps the best advice I'll give you for your personal life. The real keys to displaying a positive body language are to orient yourself to the patient, remove those physical barriers, lean into the conversation, nod your head, let me know you're there, repeat some of what I've said again, make eye contact with me, especially at the very beginning, we, we've so learned the truth of this in using electronic records. When we use paper charts, most of us could scribble down without having to look too much, but now computers require so much attention to choose the right block, to get the right dosage, to get the right drug, that we're focused on them, and so we're missing those subtle signs from our patients that would have indicated to us something was wrong or we needed to pursue a line of questioning. 
Well, they're missing our sincerity and our compassion as well also. When you have the opportunity, sit down at eye level with a patient. They will believe you have spent more time with them than if you had done so standing. I've always found it fascinating the way we build front desk in a medical office. For the most part, we build them with the patient standing and the employee sitting, which automatically puts the patient in the superior mode. It puts them in charge. I advise front desk receptionists that when they have a patient who's beginning to get a little upset or a little difficult to stand, come eye to eye level with them, lessen that distance. Now, you, you have to be careful. You have to judge would that be viewed as adversarial, but you learn that in time. And the reason you want to stand is because it puts you on an even level with the patient. And in lessening that distance, it makes you seem more collaborative, more cooperative. And, and the same is true in the exam room. Try to, to lessen that distance, make eye-to-eye contact. When you think about going into a bank or a business of some sort, the employees, they are almost always standing or behind a desk. It elevates them to the same level as the customers. In terms of the telephone, though, we don't get body language. All we really get there is tone of voice, and that is the majority of what is conveyed on the telephone. When you think about listening to the radio, listening to a DJ, we all create in our minds what we think those people look like. They have these amazing, beautiful, or, or deep, attractive voices, and, and so we imagine what does the person on the other end of the line look like? And indeed, tone of voice gives you the opportunity to tell your audience, and in this case, your patients, who it is you are. It makes you different from organizations. You can build trust and, and influence me or convince me to do something. When you're calling a patient to follow up on a missed appointment, it's really easy to say, hi, this is Steven at the doctor's office. Call to see why you missed your appointment. Check, did it. Or you can call and say, Mrs. Jones, this is Steven at Dr. Anderson's office. He's really worried that you missed your appointment yesterday. Is something going on? He asked me to give you a call. Can I get that rescheduled? It took a few more minutes, but it's much more compassionate. And while it may be appropriate to take a firmer or deeper tone of voice on the phone to convey a message or make sure you have understanding, it's almost never appropriate to raise your voice because intuitively, instinctively, the patient is going to raise his or her voice back at you and you'll do the same. So you end up yelling at one another. Remember that your posture does impact your tone of voice. And there are studies that suggest as many as 65% of new patients to a practice will determine whether to keep their initial appointment based on the tone of voice of the person they spoke with. When you're on the telephone, remember these key points. When you answer it, smile. I can hear your smile on the phone. Be prepared to talk to me, whatever that means to you, whether it's paper, pencil, or computer system. Answer promptly. If you go past the, the fourth ring or, or the fifth, I'm going to assume I'm going to voicemail and no one's going to answer me. Tell me who you are. Don't be afraid to do that. I've probably called you on my cell phone, which means we run the risk of getting disconnected. And I don't want to go back through the whole phone tree or, or figure out who I talked to. It makes it more efficient for the practice if I know who I've spoken to. Enunciate, get the food and gum out of your mouth. Ask me to repeat back what it is that you've told me. Do I need to get a piece of paper and a pencil? If you're going to ask the question, will you hold? that indicates you would like an answer. Wait for it. If you're not going to ask me the question, then, then tell me that you're going to put me in a hole. Give me some idea of how long I'm going to be there if you know it's going to be lengthy. Tell me if you're going to transfer me, and if you're going to transfer me, be reasonably certain that you are transferring me appropriately and you are not just flipping a booger on somebody else. That, that's what we call it at my office. You know, when you get that phone call and you don't know what to do with it, you just want to get rid of it, you just flip the booger on somebody else. Well, sometimes we create our own problems. If you transfer my call all over the building, not really knowing where it needs to go, by the time I do get where I need to be, I'm probably not in a very good mood. A much better way to handle that is to say, Mrs. Jones, I'm really not sure who handles this, but if you'll let me take down your name and number, and get some information from you. I'll call you back by two o'clock this afternoon, or I will make sure someone calls you back by 10 o'clock in the morning. Let me know what to expect, what's going to happen, and understand that if you can tell me why someone is called, if you can get as much information as possible in the message, that I can do the research, what he or she wants, 
I can call them back and give it to them and we're done. If I have to call the patient to find out what they wanted, well, unless I know the answer off the top of my head, you've doubled my work because I've got to call them again. And so we increase the odds of phone tag. When we make a phone call, all the rules are the same. The key difference here is you need to understand, you called me. I may be busier than you are. Hello, Mrs. Jones. This is this is the doctor's office returning your call. Is, is now a good time for you? I may be in the car line picking up my kids. I may be going down the interstate. Depending on the conversation you need to have with me, I may not be in a frame of mind that it would be useful. So help me as a patient to help you do your job. Practices oftentimes ask me to script their employees, and I, I refuse to do so. The problem with a script is that it comes out sounding fake. And the reason it does is because we either don't employ the right tone of voice or use the right body language. But I do recognize that we all get caught in difficult situations. So here are a few phrases that can be useful to you. First of all, don't be afraid to, to acknowledge that a patient seems upset. You seem really upset today, Mrs. Jones. Would you like to tell me about it? Have we done something? Is there something that, that I can do for you that we can fix? Those are all kind of good things to say. Just acknowledge it. I'd much rather you do that than, than see I'm visibly upset and, and do nothing about it. The next two questions, one is good, one has a challenge. When you ask a patient, what would you like me to do next? You need to be prepared to either do what they've asked for or explain why you can't. I, I think that is a, a loaded gun sometimes. What I really prefer is the next bullet. Here's what I'd like to do next. When you tell me what you would like to do, you've taken charge, you appear confident, you appear confident. It makes it sound like you're taking care of me. I really appreciate that. It's okay to agree in principle with your patients. We all acknowledge healthcare costs are rising. None of us like to, to wait on uh, pre-authorization, but don't wallow in it with them. And you know, Mr. Jones, I understand you're upset you're having to wait on your MRI. We're doing the best we can. It's, you know, it's Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, HealthSpring, whoever the payer is, Aetna, that requires us to do this. And, you know, it usually takes them a few days. So if you'll hang in there with us, we're happy to get this done for you because we don't want you to get the bill. Again, there's some subliminal messages in there. We agree with you. This is a frustration. But understand, we're working for you. We're not the ones who are causing the problem here. Appreciate when your patients share their experiences and feelings with you because 90% of them will never tell you they are upset with you, but they will on average tell 8 to 20 other people about their experience. Approach situations from the perspective of what you can do versus what you can't do. When you tell me you can't do something, you immediately sound difficult, like you don't care, you're not willing to help. When you start out the conversation, this is what I can do, then you sound much more agreeable. I was talking to a medical records clerk in an orthopedic office who was telling me how upset patients get with her when she had to tell them that they couldn't have their paperwork or forms that they'd ask the office to fill out. And, and I asked the question, is it because you have a backlog or behind what's going on? And she said, oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. They're always ready. It's just that We've made the decision to charge for those forms, which I know many offices do, and they've not paid for them. So I have to tell them they can't have them. And I suggested to her that may be the wrong approach. They can have the forms, but they need to do something. So what I would say is, got those forms all ready for you, Mr. Anderson. All I need for you to do is to, to pay the $10. How do you want to take care of that today? Don't take on what somebody else needs to do as something you can't do. They have a responsibility in this well as well also. In terms of what patients value, uh, privacy is at the top of the list. And understand that if I ever hear you talking about another patient, I will dismiss you as a gossip because I know you'll talk about me. Walls in most offices are paper thin. We overhear conversations. It's fine to ask me for my copay at the front desk, but if you're turning me over to collections, I don't want the whole lobby to hear that. We value verbal communication and recommendations from our, our physicians and, and practitioners. That's why we ask the question, what would you do if it were you? For those of you who've gotten a flu shot this year, stop and think about it. Did you stop the person who gave you the injection and said, let me see the vial? 
I want to make sure it's influenza vaccine. I want to make sure it's not expired. Most of us don't do that. Our healthcare system would fall apart if we didn't trust. That's why physicians, nurses, and pharmacists remain in the top three most trusted professions in our country. Eye contact is third because I'm determining whether I trust you and how serious you are and whether you believe what you're telling me. Next is a little bit of physical contact and you have to judge what is appropriate to the patient and what they want. Some will want none, some will want a full on bear hug. You have to figure that out. But notice the huge drop to body positioning. That's about getting in the patient's personal space. And, and we understand that when we go to the doctor, that it very likely is going to get personal, but there should be a transition. Are you ready to get started? I need to get some vital signs. Stephen, will you hop up on the exam table so we can get started today? That's what signals to me that you're going to come into my space and it's okay. It is so easy to assume that our patients are all difficult and that's simply not the reality. The vast majority of our patients say that they have a wonderful relationship and they are already engaged in their care. So it's a very small percentage albeit perhaps those that are, are more likely to complain or a little bit louder, uh, that we have to work harder with. Understand that a number of our patients still rush through the process, and the data says that we interrupt them far too quickly, and if we had left them alone, they would not have talked for that long. I, I'm not sure about some of these statistics, but they are widely published. The point, though, is that if you don't let me finish telling you what's going on, how do you expect me to trust your answer? How do you expect me to believe that you understand what's important to me? Now, if we've discussed this before, certainly you can move on the conversation. Well, now, Stephen, we've talked about that before. Or remember your last visit, we did this. What we need to focus on today, find a way to move it along gently without dismissing me. Remind me that, that you do have the history, that you are there for me. When, when you don't let me get it all out and you haven't done that, it shakes the confidence I have in what it is that you're telling me. I, I do understand that from my perspective, it's easy to talk about these issues. Uh, you know, I spent a long time in hospital and physician-owned organizations, and I've, I've dealt with certainly my share of patients over the years. But one of the biggest problems that you're going to have in all of this is what we refer to as low health literacy. We know that People simply don't understand what we're telling them. We're not talking about people who are illiterate, who, who've not had the, the benefit of learning to read and write. We're, we're talking about people who are very well-educated sometimes, who simply don't get our world. The, the terminology we use is confusing. We talk about hematocrit and hemoglobin and hemostats. We, we talk about warfarin and cumidin, and the average patient thinks those are two different things. And I suffer from this. When when we were at the orthopedist last year talking about what we needed to do, I mean, within 30 minutes of leaving, two grown college-educated adults are in the car arguing about what the doctor said to do and not to do. And looking at it from a statistical perspective, the government estimates that a third of us suffer from low health literacy, two-thirds of people over the age of 60, and those are the biggest consumers of health care. Half of us walk out without knowing what to do, we will ask on average less than two questions while there because it's embarrassing for you to think we're either ignorant or stupid. 40 to 80% of what we are told is forgotten almost immediately. And what we do retain only about half is correct. 37% of patients say they understood what they were told, yet 80% of physicians were fooled into thinking the patients understood what they were told. We have a responsibility to ensure that competent adults have all the information they need. We can't make the decisions for them. We can't make them do what we have to do. But ethically and legally, we have a responsibility to ensure that they understand their choices. The easiest way to deal with low health, low health literacy is what we call the teach-back method, or ask-tell-ask. Ask. And that's about using questions that begin with how and what. Mrs. Jones, can you tell me what you're going to tell your children? Mr. Smith, can you tell me where you need to be and what you need to do to prepare for your procedure next week? Mrs. Anderson, the doctor's told you to take a pill with every meal. Can you tell me how you're going to do that? Acknowledge that this is difficult. Don't ask if your patient can read or write. If, if you suspect there's a problem, ask if they have difficulty understanding. Make sure that you're using plain language and enunciating. 
The average American reads on the 10th grade level, which means we should be using words at a sixth grade level or below. We, I see practices that ask about paternal family history or maternal family history. Uh, not everybody knows what that means, but ask me about my father's family history, my mother's family history. Visit summaries can be very effective for many patients, especially those with caregivers, and perhaps a video or visuals are more effective than some other form, and, and those patients who appear to be non-compliant that miss their appointments, that don't do what they're told, uh, those very oftentimes are not the sign of a difficult patient, but are the sign of a patient who does not understand what he or she should do. There are cultural issues which need to be considered as well to race and ethnicity, religion, all play into how we want to be treated, how we want to be touched, eye contact, whether we want a chaperone in the room, and, and even things like age or the part of the country we're from will dictate the relationship you want. And there are a couple of resources here for you on the bottom of the page, and these are government sites, but the most effective way to determine the interaction a patient wants is to simply ask him or her. Unfortunately, one of the things that goes along with working in the physician's office means that we have to deliver bad information. I like the acronym SPIKES to help guide that conversation. First, consider the setting. Is this a face-to-face -face conversation or is this a telephone conversation? Uh, a lot of things may drive that, the age of the patient, the information being conveyed. Should you tell the patient to bring someone with them? What will the patient's perspective be on what you tell them? The 96-year-old widower who has outlived all of his children, who is tired and in pain, will have a reaction to a terminal diagnosis, but it will likely be a very different reaction to the one that the 26-year-old who had the wedding of her dreams last summer just wants to have a baby is going to have to the same diagnosis. How much information do they want? Every detail or just enough to move on to the next visit, to the next step? What is their knowledge level? When, when you talk about biopsies and, and oncology and those types of things, do they really understand what you've told them? I, I look back at, at my own father, who I mentioned earlier. I, I was at the appointment when his primary care physician referred him to the oncologist. He never used the word cancer. And through it all, I'm not sure my father ever had a really good understanding of what was going on. Sometimes you have to say the words cancer, stroke, heart attack, or diabetes to get the right response to facilitate an action on the part of the patient. And then there's empathy. Empathy is the key to patient experience. Many people mistakenly think empathy means you have to like someone. That's not actually what it is. Empathy is about the ability to put yourself in someone else's place, to think how they would want to be treated and then to be professional and mature enough to treat them with that courtesy, respect, and service. And then finally, your strategy. Strategy is certainly treatment, but all too often when there is no treatment, we assume there is no strategy. That's not true. Sometimes strategy involves asking the patient what he or she wants. And many times we, we focus on what we can do and forget that they may want to have a say in this. And at the end of the day, when there is nothing, sometimes strategy is just about helping them with that transition and being compassionate. As we wrap this up today, courtesy, respect, and professionalism go a long way. Greet the patient, introduce yourself unless you know who they are, address them by name, and, and understand, is that Steve, Stephen, or Mr. Dickens? Make eye contact with them at the very beginning. Connect personally, engage in the conversation. Knock on the exam door and wait for an answer. And then when you go in, move away from it. Sit down for a minute. Understand that every person is unique and that patients come to us, not by choice for the most part, but by necessity. They come out of fear. They come because they're sick. You are always being watched. When I sit in the lobby, the moment my appointment becomes a minute late, if I have seen the receptionist on his or her cell phone, it becomes their fault. As I walk back through the, the nurse's area to the exam room, if they're all gathered there and they're enjoying a, a laughter or, or something, I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt and stop to think about, is this the only break they've had? Have they been to the bathroom? Have they been fed? Did they just walk out of a terminal patient's exam room? 
I'm worried about whether they're holding the doctor up from getting to me. Smile. It costs you nothing. It's contagious. And when you smile, everything on your face should light up and everything on your face should move. Unless, of course, you work in a dermatology or plastic surgery practice, in which case you get a buy on that one. But finally, don't be afraid to ask the question if there's anything else you can do. And the time to ask that question is at the beginning of the appointment as opposed to the end, because that's what allows you to manage it. That's what allows you to prevent surprises. That's what allows you to guide the patient down the path of what it is that we're going to do next. And, and really, you need that information at the beginning as opposed to the end. And don't forget, it's not about you. It's about them. We don't see them at their best. We see them usually at their worst, at their most frightened, and when they need us the most. And with that, I am done for today. My contact information is there uh, on the slide and in the handout, and I'm happy to take any questions if we have them. Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that. That was a really excellent presentation. Um, we do have a few questions, and okay. uh, so um, I'll uh, take those right here. So um, how do you convince employees of the importance of patient experience? Okay, that's a great question. How do you convince employees of the importance of patient experience? Well, I think it begins with the culture of the organization. Employees have to see that it's important to doctors and it's important to administration they're living it. Uh, when doctors and administration make fun of patients behind their back, when they talk about how silly or stupid or ridiculous they are, you've given uh, authority to the employees to do the same. So, so defining that culture and making sure that everyone understands it's important. I think providing educational opportunities to employees and providing frequent reminders about, you know, this is why this is important. This is how we achieve a better uh, patient experience. But Beyond those two things, then, you have to make sure that you're hiring the right people into the organization. And you, you can tell pretty quickly within a new employee's tenure whether this is something that's going to be important to them, whether this is something they can pick up on, or whether it's something that they can't balance with their duties. So set the right environment, hire the right people, and talk about it on a regular basis are the three keys. Great. And uh, do you have any recommendations for managing the patient who suddenly has multiple issues that cannot possibly be addressed in a visit schedule? So you said the average was about 12 minutes um, for, for a uh, visit, which, which seems pretty short, um, but what if they suddenly come out with um, lots of um, issues? <laughs> oh, don't they all do that? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah, what to do with a patient who suddenly you came in for the allergy and has cancer in their big toe now. Uh, right. That goes back to triage. Uh, I know many practices will ask patients to, to complete forms or a tablet or something, asking them about what their objectives are for the visit. And, and that's a really good way to um, kind of scope that out so that before the physician gets into the exam room, they have an idea of what it is that's going on. And, and that's still not always effective. That's why I mentioned, ask the question, is there anything else at the beginning of the appointment? Because you have to acknowledge that you can't do it all. So the response back to the patient is, well, I understand that you have these five issues today. Uh, this is what we were expecting to deal with in the time that we allotted today. Looking at your list, these are the issues that I think we need to deal with that are the most important today. And this is what we're going to address. But then the next comment is, here's what we're going to do with everything else. We're going to get lab work. We're going to get a diagnostic tech. We're going to reappoint you or whatever. The patient has to walk out understanding, you heard me. You have prioritized what we're going to do. And I know what the next steps are. And I get that they want to get everything done in one visit because it's more efficient for them. But you, you really have to emphasize to them that that's not what we're going to do and it, it's not the best way to do this. And, and doctors need to remember that they do get to make those decisions. I know they feel like they don't anymore. Uh, but, and, and sometimes you have to, have to say to the patient, you know, it's really important, you know, I'm going to spend the time allotted with you, with you, but, you know, I also need to 
you know, we have, you, you don't want to wait and, and nobody else does either. So you have to judge whether this is a patient you can stay that with. But I really think the triage process and figuring it out before you get in the room and giving them a plan is the best approach. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I guess because we're, since you were talking about me being more uh, patient centric and, and uh, do you have any more uh, advice on that with, um, uh, you know, making sure that patients feel like they're not being um, rushed off? Uh, yes. And, and, you know, a lot of that is about the body language and, um, you know, not hopping up to run out the door before you're actually finished. I, I do think visit summaries are a great tool because, you know, it, it gives them something to take home. And, and when I talk about visit summaries, I'm talking about a useful visit summary. I'm not talking about sure. whatever the computer system spits out. Somebody needs to have looked at that and make sure that it's printing out information in plain English, whether it's bullet points or, or whatever, that the patient can, can see, okay, this is what we've talked about and this is what we're going to do next. A lot of that feeling rushed is about the tone of voice and body language, which is why it's important to control those. True. True. We had another question that came in, too. Um, you mentioned the need okay. to um, assure patient understanding. How do you feel about recording conversations with patients? That could be oh, a okay. interesting question. Uh, that is a great question. That is a hot topic. How do I feel about patients recording conversations? Well, first of all, I will tell you they're already doing it and you don't know it. Well, that's uh, true. We've moved, on, we've moved on to the point with technology that you just push a little button on your phone and they're recording the conversation. And uh, generally the question I get after I say that is, well, is that legal? And the response is it depends on the state you're in. I will tell you the majority of states within the United States uh, require only one person consent which means as long as one person in the conversation knows it's being recorded, it is perfectly legal and would be admissible in court. Uh, the patient would count as that one person. So there, there are, I think, less than 10 states that require both people to, to actively know. So for those practices that are actively dealing with it, there are one or two paths you can go down. Uh, you can certainly put up signage that says, you know, video and audio recording is not allowed or is prohibited and just kind of generally put it out there. And when you find out that a patient is doing it, you can ask them to stop. And if they, if they don't or you feel that they don't, then you have to make a decision about are you going to continue to see that patient. So there's, there's that one path that if you are adamantly opposed to it and they're doing it, you have to make a decision what you're going to do with the patient. And then there's the other school of thought that believes it is actually a useful tool. Now, if you believe it's a useful tool, my advice to you is that you take charge of the situation and that if the patient wants to do it, you, you say to them, I'm happy for you to record the directions today. We, we obviously aren't going to record the exam or the procedure of any of those things. And you just tell them that that's your policy. Ask the the patient to hold the phone up to you or, or may you hold it so that you can record the instructions. Uh, you, you do have patients who will want to record the entire thing, who will want to record a procedure or something, and you simply tell them that it's in, intrusive. Uh, you know, obviously the patient can't sit there and hold it during the exam, so if you've got a family member trying to do it, they're too close. And So you, you simply, our policy is that you do prohibit it at a minimum or a recommendation. Uh, to our physicians is that at a minimum you prohibit it during exam and procedures. And if you do allow patients to make recordings that you do only so for your follow-up instructions to them. Again, it, it really is a hot topic. And so you have to decide, do you want to continue seeing patients who are doing it or do you want to take charge of it? Hmm. That's a really interesting answer. That's, that's very, very good. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, it's a hard situation. You know, when, when you have a patient who says to you, oh, this would be so great for me. And, you know, and you just think, oh, gosh, where is this going to go? What's going to happen with it? And that's why, you know, I made the comment about prophecy earlier and being aware of who's around, who's listening. If nothing comes out of your mouth inappropriate, you're a whole lot safer than getting caught saying something you shouldn't have said. 
And we've seen some of those cases that have been in the news that, you know, patients have, have been recording and they've caught physicians making derogatory comments about them. Well, the lesson in that was you should have never said those things about them to begin with. Right, right. That's true. Well, very good. Do you have any final thoughts or advice for our for our listeners? Uh, patient experience is a challenge. It it is. I get it. We we all have tough days. We all forget. But you have to set back and remember that your patients don't know what kind of day you're having. They don't know what the last patient was like you had to deal with. And the reality is they don't care. So you have to take a deep breath in between every one and you have to fake it till you make it. And the key is to treat people the way you'd want to be treated, the way your family would want to be treated, the way you think they would want to be treated. Very good. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for, for joining us today and I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you attendees also. Well, you're very uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. And uh, attendees, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Uh, and later on, if you think of anything, uh, you can send us the questions. We'll forward them on. Please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you uh, within two days following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.